0: Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Society of Critical Care Medicine President-elect Craig Coopersmith, M.D., FCCM, and Jay Varkey, M.D. Both physicians are from Emory University, where Dr. Coopersmith is Professor of Surgery, And Dr. Varkey is Assistant Professor of Medicine in Infectious Disease and serves as the Director of the Antimicrobial Management Program and Associate Hospital Epidemiologist at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. They are here today with us to discuss the Ebola epidemic and other emerging infections such as MERS and SARS and how clinicians should be preparing for these types of patients Dr. Varkey was on a team of clinicians at Emory who successfully treated an American nurse and doctor with Ebola. He will share his experience and lessons learned. Thank you for being with us today, gentlemen.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Dr. Varkey, would you start out with some background information on the Ebola virus and what we know about it?
2: So Ebola virus is an RNA virus. It's enveloped. It's part of a family called Filoviridae, and there's two genre of viruses there. There's Marburg virus and Ebola virus. And it gets its name because the virus particles can actually take on multiple forms. They can appear circular. They can appear in the shape of a number six, or they can appear in straight filaments where it gets its name of Filoviridae. But from a clinical standpoint, you know, I think the important thing is that there's five recognized subtypes of Ebola virus, and the one that's best known and the one that has been most relevant recently is the Zaire subtype of Ebola virus. It's one of the five that's been associated with the highest case fatality rates, which in some outbreaks have been as high as 90%. And it's the strain or subtype that appears to have the most homology to the current strain that's causing so much disease in West Africa. And I guess from my standpoint, I think it's helpful to remember that Ebola virus, although certainly new to the United States, isn't actually that new to Africa. It's actually first identified back in 1976 when there were simultaneous outbreaks in then Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo, as well as the Sudan. And those two outbreaks, there was roughly 600 cases, and the mortality rates in Sudan were over 50%. In Zaire, they were nearly 90%. And since then, there have been episodic outbreaks that have gone on throughout Central Africa with a very large profile one in 1995. That, again, was in the Democratic Republic of Congo that one got a lot of attention you know sort of indirectly because uh, a few months prior to to that outbreak movie outbreak was released so that was back in 1995 so it was a medical disaster film that featured a virus very similar to Ebola so at that time that was actually the largest outbreak until around 2000 2001 where there was an outbreak in the Sudan which up until last December represented the largest outbreak of Ebola In that case, there were 400-some cases with a a 50% mortality. But the thing that's really caused the most concern, and obviously has been in the news a lot recently, has been the outbreak that started in West Africa last December. And a couple things have been very unique about this outbreak. First and foremost, it's the first time Ebola has been reported in West Africa. So initially in Guinea, And then by late March of 2014 in Liberia, by the end of May 2014, the epidemic had spread to Sierra Leone. And then in July, the first case was reported in Nigeria. This has been far and away the worst outbreak of Ebola that's that's been recorded. So far, there's been over 5,000 reported cases and over 2,500 deaths. And there's broad recognition that that's likely an underestimate of the degree of disease present in West Africa the concern is, and and I share this concern, is is that it's likely that the numbers will get worse before they get better. And part and parcel of that is that in terms of trying to get control of the outbreak, we have an increasing number of physicians from the United States, the United Kingdom, mobilized in non-governmental organizations around the world who are sending resources to West Africa to try and control the outbreak. But as a result, I think we, in the United States and, and in other countries, need to be prepared for the possibility of having returning healthcare staff and others that have Ebola virus. And that was our experience at Emory.
0: Can you tell us something about your experience in managing patients with Ebola?
2: Sure. So I guess the best way to summarize it is that I think Emory University Hospital is sort of in the unique position of being the first uh, hospital to care for two patients of the Bolivars in the United States, partially because we have a unique facility. We call it the SCD, or Serious Communicable Disease Unit. And it's in a separate wing of the hospital. And it was actually designed with the Centers for Disease Control and uh, Prevention to care for uh, Returning travelers with serious infectious diseases. And it was actually designed to care for diseases that are far more contagious than Ebola. Uh, you had mentioned at the beginning of the podcast SARS and MERS, diseases that can be passed somewhat easily through a casual droplet contact. In this case, because we had this unique unit, as well as the staff that had been practicing quarterly for the last 12 years in the event of having to care for somebody with a serious communicable disease, it seemed like the absolutely appropriate place to care for these two patients. Some of the unique challenges we had, there were several, and I, I guess the, I basically summarized summarize it as the operations needed to care for the patients. So first and foremost, there were the you know challenges regarding the clinical care. There were issues regarding maintaining 100% safety of staff as well as the environment. There were logistical challenges in terms of laboratory testing as well as waste management, and I'd be happy to talk about those in detail.
0: Why don't you tell us what we have to consider if we're going to be in the position of managing patients with some of these contagious and emerging infections, and going through those four points would be of interest to many of us. Yeah,
2: no, absolutely. Well, I guess first and foremost, it's worth recognizing the fact that although there are several interesting candidate drugs for therapy as well as candidate vaccines. As of today, there are no proven therapeutics for treatment of Ebola virus. So the treatment, like many of the diseases we care for in our intensive care units, is supportive care. What we learned based on our experience with the two patients we cared for and a third that we're currently caring for is just how important that supportive care is. I cannot emphasize the important role of having 24-7 one-on-one nursing care was to the care of the two patients that we treated, as well as the one that we're currently treating. Having 24-7, one-on-one nursing really allowed us to rapidly respond to changes in vital signs, changes in fluid status, and be able to respond quickly to any laboratory abnormalities that we detected. And we detected plenty. So, one of the sort of unique things that we learned in our experience caring for two patients Diarrhea and gastroenteritis symptoms are well described with Ebola, but the severity of it is phenomenal. The patients we cared for had marked electrolyte abnormalities as well as nutritional deficiencies. So severe hypokalemia, severe hypocalcemia, severe hyponatremia, which required very aggressive IV as well as oral replacement. And we hypothesize that the majority of these electrolyte deficiencies likely stem from the severity of their gastroenteritis. The patients we cared for had diarrhea that is comparable to that of cholera, really liters of diarrhea that needed to be replaced and having subsequent electrolytes corrected, which I can only imagine the type of challenges that that poses in a you know, resource-limited setting like Liberia or Sierra Leone, where, again, oftentimes the therapies are limited to just oral rehydration solution. So that was really one issue. The second issue in terms of laboratory testing and diagnostics was interesting. The CDC has been very clear that standard precautions followed in a lab should be sufficient to test patients either suspected or confirmed to have a Bolivar's disease. In our case at Emory, because we had this unique communicable disease unit, we actually had a small point-of-care lab that we had established that was separate from the rest of the lab. Now, again, this is not something that's absolutely necessary to care for a patient with Ebola, but it did offer several advantages. One is, is that there certainly was less fear among hospital staff and laboratory staff. There was less impact on staffing and patient care. It also offered us the chance to have real, actual immediate results, truly stat results. The disadvantages was that we had a fairly limited test panel. We could get complete blood counts, metabolic panels, but in terms of more sophisticated testing, we didn't have it. The second is is that if our point-of-care machine went out of order, there was really no backup. The third issue is really goes more in terms of, I think, what you're asking in terms of preparation is that, do the cost of maintaining this equipment, if it's rarely used, is that a sustainable model? And I think that's something that probably each hospital, as we talk about preparation, probably needs to question uh, among themselves. The other issues that we encountered gets into sort of staff and environmental safety. And this is something that I think probably first and foremost was a priority that really started way before we even admitted these patients. As I mentioned, the benefit of our unit is that we had a dedicated team of physician and nursing staff who had been practicing quarterly, really doing drills on donning and doffing personal protective equipment. And I do want to emphasize the fact that in caring for these patients with Ebola at Emory, we did follow the CDC guidelines on personal protective equipment. I think it's been well-recognized that, that the CDC has recommended wearing fluid-resistant or impermeable gowns, gloves, eye protection, a face mask. The, the thing that I think has, has been forgotten, and it's, very, it's on the next column in that table in the CDC guidelines, is that in certain situations, additional personal protective equipment might be needed, and that includes double-gloving, disposable shoe covers, and leg coverings, which I think it's important to maintain that flexibility. In other words, if you're caring for a patient who's got severe gastroenteritis and, again, is, is having cholera-like diarrhea, I don't think it takes too much to imagine the need to make sure that you really have PPE that is covering your legs and your and your shoes, as well as double gloves. Uh, but in our case, I think the advantage was, was not just having the equipment, but also having staff that had practiced and then got retrained in terms of donning and doffing that equipment. So before we even admitted our patients, each staff member had to undergo refresher training from qualified instructors and was always observed by another team member every time they put on or took off their personal protective equipment. I guess the metaphor I would use is sort of like a buddy system. And uh, again, I I can personally vouch for how much much of an advantage that was when you're working long hours and you want to make sure that you're not contaminating yourself to have somebody watching you as you're going through this process. Again, the whole goal here was to make sure that the staff working on these patients was completely comfortable and assured on their own safety so that they could do their jobs. And again, having that team approach was extremely helpful. One other point that I would talk about with staff safety, is, again, just making sure that we had a open, transparent environment to make sure that all of us were being safe and staying healthy. So our occupational injury management colleagues were very helpful in terms of setting up basically an online log where At the beginning of each shift, all physicians, all nurses, anyone working in the unit took their temperature at the beginning of the shift and the end of the shift, reported any symptoms I may have developed, and that log was checked twice a day to make sure that, again, any symptoms were addressed to make sure that none of our healthcare workers were potentially working while sick. The other thing that I think was important just from a team communication standpoint, and I, I think this is probably of particular interest to your listeners is using that concept of a team huddle of taking a time out and discussing the goals of the day. That's something that occurred every day we cared for patients and it continues to occur every day as we care for patients with Ebola. There is a staff meeting that includes all laboratory personnel, physicians, nurses, administrators, to go through the goals of the day and to make sure that, you know, any ongoing staffing issues are addressed. The last point I guess I'll just deal with from an operations standpoint is the question of waste management. This was a, it was a huge issue. Uh, I'll, I'll put it that way. For understandable reasons, even though the CDC has been quite clear that a standard, municipal waste system is sufficient to care for waste from patients of Ebola, our local civil authorities were quite insistent at requesting that no untreated patient waste enter the standard municipal system. So we actually developed a standard operating protocol where all liquid waste was disinfected with either bleach or a a standard hospital-grade disinfecting compound for at least five minutes before flushing. In addition, all room waste that came out of the room where we were caring for patients with Ebola, were double-bagged and sent to an autoclave that we had on the unit. It would be important, I think, to, to remind your listeners that the amount of waste we generated was profound.
0: Oh, Yeah, and at its,
2: at its highest, we were generating up to 40 large bags a day of waste to be autoclaved. And I talked with our environmental services administrators, and we added it up. Our first patient we had was admitted for 19 days. Our second patient was admitted for 14 days. Over that time period, we autoclaved 350 bags of regulated medical waste that weighed over 3,000 pounds. That was packaged into 218 boxes of uh, regulated waste and six separate shipments that were then transported for incineration. So it was, you know, we were off by a log in terms of anticipating how much waste we would generate. And it's, I think, really important from a preparation standpoint because we had a lot of hands on board to help us through that process.
0: You have an environment where you have this special unit already there and people already trained and you have the facilities and resources to be able to deal with the PPE, the staffing, the waste disposal, the laboratory. What is the average hospital ICU around the country supposed to do? God forbid this epidemic should arrive here.
2: Yeah. No, I, I think that the reality of it is is that Just from a simple capacity standpoint, we have to be prepared for any hospital in the country to have a plan to deal with a patient with Ebola. I think some of the challenges we discovered, we're trying to disseminate that information so that hospitals can be prepared. In terms of equipment, true, we had the personal protective equipment. I would argue that more than the equipment itself, which is attainable. There was nothing particularly special about it, but that the preparation and the training and having staff that are comfortable in it are absolutely key. And there again, I think the whole idea of drilling and having competencies, and again, all of us who work in a you know acute care hospital, whether it be in an ICU or a general medicine ward, think, including myself, that we're proficient in putting on a gown and gloves. But I quickly, <laughs> quickly realized the fact that the stakes are a little bit different when you need to be absolutely meticulous in making sure that you're not contaminating yourself. And in that case, I was very helpful to have trainers to do that. Just to give you an example of a, of a resource that was very helpful for us that might be helpful for other medical centers, our university biosafety colleagues who you know, are empowered to try and make sure that the laboratories are following safe practices were great colleagues in terms of helping us access the personal protective equipment we needed, but also to actually train us. And that was, uh, that was a really neat example, I think, of collaboration you know, across our university that I think we hadn't realized prior to having to activate the unit.
0: And that could be something that could be helpful to many university settings. They would have access to people with that kind of information and skill. Exactly. All I can say is I hope this doesn't (laughs) happen. (laughs) But with more and more physicians, as you say, going to uh, help and care for people in Africa and potentially becoming infected, as your patients did, we may see this in other areas. So I think the information that you've given us is extraordinarily important. Dr. Coopersmith, can you comment on what we, the members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, can do to help prepare ourselves and to help uh, manage these patients in the U.S.? And also, internationally, what can we contribute?
1: Well, we have a number of resources within SCCM. We have, at all times, an emergency response website. So if one goes to sccm.org disaster, we have a multi-pronged website that includes resources on Ebola, on influenza. On volunteer opportunities, a forum for people in our e-community to share tips with each other and ask questions of each other, as well as multiple external resources to going to things like the CDC and FEMA and public health responses, et cetera. Also, on our website, if one goes to just secm.org, at the very top, one will see four orange different bands, and one of them is called Learn ICU, which is something that many of our members are aware of, but perhaps some are not, and Learn ICU has 25 different knowledge lines within everything that would be important to somebody in critical care. The two that would be most important here in knowledge areas would be disaster, which is related but not identical to the specific emergency website that I just spoke to, as well as infection, as well as sepsis, all of which tie into our Ebola website, and there is a wealth of information there And then finally, our society offers the fundamentals of disaster management, which can be done online, can be done through a book form, and can be done through a live course. And for getting to all of these, one can easily browse our website. So no matter where one is in the world, one can do that. Specific to your question about internationally, if one is looking in a less resourced environment like Dr. Varky was talking about, the needs are going to be clearly different because the infrastructure is going to be very different. And that gets into somewhat what we're doing with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. So the Surviving Sepsis Campaign is a partnership between the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. And I would hope that our listeners recognize the tremendous success that we've had in decreasing mortality from sepsis over the last 10 years or so with the three different versions of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and now with the three-hour and six-hour bundles. However, it's very clear that those are aimed towards people who are in more resourced countries. And because of that and because of SECM and ESICM saw a need, we're starting up a pilot program between the two organizations, also sponsored by the Hellman Foundation, initially starting up in Gitway, Rwanda, to look at bringing surviving sepsis to under-resourced communities, where instead of talking about things like CVPs and blood cultures and lactates, many of which are not available, we're talking about really a sepsis first aid kit, very different, something that could be done in a very simple place, much more like what Dr. Varkey was talking about if you don't have the ability to do that. So this is an exciting future and I think it's important to say that Ebola very much is uh, sepsis. There's all the things that Dr. Varkey was talking about that are specific to the disease because it's a communicable disease but he also emphasized the fact that ultimately right now the treatment is supportive care and supportive care, it doesn't matter whether this is coming from pseudomonas or this is coming from staph or whether this is coming from Ebola. If somebody's sick enough to fluids and electrolytes, if they need to be on dialysis, if they need to be on a ventilator, the care is very much the same. And so in the United States, the surviving sepsis campaign would continue to be a cornerstone. And in the emerging third world, I think we have new opportunities as well.
0: Dr. Varkey, do you have any additional comments you'd like to make?
2: I agree wholeheartedly with what Craig just outlined. To me, I think one of the important metaphors here and just emphasizing the important role of supportive care is just talking about mortality rates. And this is also something that I think might be helpful in terms of other hospital systems as they try and prepare for the possibility of having to care for a patient with Ebola. One of the things, and this is a credit to our hospital administration in terms of organizing this, in terms of internal communications, was setting up a whole series of open forums for hospital staff to come to. And these were held twice a day for the first five days, While even before we admitted our first two patients with Ebola virus. And a lot of the feedback we got from hospital staff was related to mortality and was whether admitting somebody with Ebola virus, whether it was a futile gesture, if you're really talking about you know, case fatality rates as high as 90%. I think the important thing that what uh, Dr. Smith just outlines is that we're really talking about when you look at the historical case fatality rates of 90%, you're really talking about in a truly resource-limited setting. And the honest answer is no one really knows what the true case fatality rate would be if the infrastructure in those settings, in Liberia or in Sierra Leone, was advanced to the point of a resource-enhanced country like the United States. But you mentioned SARS at the beginning of the podcast, and I think that's a great illustrative example. Because again, you know, in 2003, when the first SARS cases were being announced, the initial case fatality rate was thought to be 50%. And in the end, with aggressive supportive care, and once more milder disease manifestations of SARS have been identified, I believe the true case fatality rate during that outbreak was more like 11%. And if I recall correctly, I think in the United States, we treated eight patients with laboratory-confirmed SARS, none of whom died. Now, again, I think it'd probably be presumptuous to think that the outcomes could be that good, but I don't think that Ebola virus needs to be considered a death sentence. I think we can do much, much better than 90% if the institutions that were caring for this disease had the infrastructure to provide aggressive supportive care. And it's, it's one, of the, one of the things that we had to emphasize a lot to our hospital staff. And so far, my hope is that that carries through regarding the patients we're caring for today.
0: So the major messages from you are strict attention to personal protection staff training and education, and top-notch, high-quality, supportive care is our best preparation for Ebola or any other potentially emerging infection. Exactly. Well, thank you very much. I think this has been very interesting, and I appreciate both of you taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: We have been speaking today with Dr. Craig Coopersmith, Society of Critical Care Medicine President-elect, and Dr. Jay Varkey, Infectious Disease Specialist from Emory University, about emerging infectious diseases, including the Ebola virus. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker.
3: Mark your calendar and join more than 6,000 members of the critical care community in the Valley of the Sun for SCCM's 44th Critical Care Congress to be held January 17th to 21st, 2015 in Phoenix, Arizona, USA. Visit www.sccm.org congress to register and for more information. Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM serves as an Associate Editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is Professor of Pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University Medical Center. A former President of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email icriticalcare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.